Welcome back, Dig This listeners. This is part two of the classic episode on ESP Disc. We're going to start with an examination of the gods. most interesting thing about the gods is their their total inability to play their instruments. <laughs> A, they, weren't, they weren't the first, and they certainly are not going to be the last, although in, in, in the computer age, you can learn things a lot quicker without even having to pick up an instrument. But, we're but ta- this was the... This was the- aesthetic of punk. This was the aesthetic of punk, which is why the gods, G-O-D-Z, are considered a seminal act in uh, rock and roll. For those who who have been paying attention to what later became punk rock, what's what's called punk rock. uh, A favorite favorite of Lester Bangs. Favorite of Lester Bangs. Lester Bangs believed that the primitive nature of this group spoke to something that had not been addressed before. And when we listen to certain elements of the first two albums, Contact White Hi- Cat White Cat Heat. White Cat Heat on Contact High with the Gods, their first release. These are the they loved animal sounds. They, they used animal sounds. But Brian Wilson was an aficionado of, of this same type of uh, exploration of all different sounds going into the, in, into the studio. And these, these creations, this, this immense canvas, this audio canvas. But of course, Brian Wilson was a genius. And Brian Wilson was yeah. able to harness it all and put it in a uh, a spectrum that shines so brightly above and beyond most other popular music, let alone rock music. The Gods... Yeah, uh, this guy Paul Thornton from The Gods, I have a quote from his interview uh, in this book where he says, um, you know, they were shipping clerks that worked at Sam Goody. And, uh, and, and, Thornton, and Thornton also was the traffic manager work uh, for ESP and he said you know we want to make a record too and at first Bernard got pissed off but then he he said okay I'll come over and he came over to their apartment and uh, we sat on the floor and did a song called White Cat Heat it's a song where it doesn't make any difference what we play all we do is meow <laughs> that's right and he loved it Bernard loved it and uh, he called it organic tribal body rock mm-hmm and these recordings, I can remember first putting them on the turntable. And on Gods 2, there was a record, there was a song called Radar Eyes. And Radar Eyes yeah. was actually released as a single. And if the gods were going to have any chance, any chance in hell at creating any stir in a 45 RPM oriented marketplace, it was with radar. Eyes. <laughs> 
you continue on this journey on the album and the gods run true to form and you've got the sounds and you've got the much like Albert Eiler considered unlistenable side two track one crusade goes on for approximately five minutes it's just a tapestry of sound that we're unaccustomed to hearing when we're used to hearing songs and then suddenly it turns into something else yeah they were there was a lot of experimentation Tom uh, Tom Rapp well a lot of this is accredited to the engineer Richard Alderson who was um, I believe the engineer for the jazz recordings as well and then he recorded Tom Rapp's record um what was the first album the first uh, Pearls Before Swine One Nation uh, Underground yes One Nation Underground with that fabulous Hieronymus Bosch well Balaclava Balaclava was the second recording and that was the Hieronymus Bosch cover oh that was the Hieronymus Bosch okay yeah. um, but uh, Tom Rapp credits a lot of the interesting instruments and sounds from that first record to Richard Alderson and the fact that Impact Sound, which was the, uh, did you ever record there? Yes. Impact Sound had a lot of uh, different types of instruments in, in the studio. Everywhere. Middle Eastern, oods and drones and strange celestes and keyboards. And, and you hear that in, uh, in the Pearls Before Swine recordings, which are beautiful. Those are my favorite of all of the ESP stuff. I think um, there's something very uh, moving and it, it, it hits the heart. Tom Rapp had a real ability. And he had a very sweet, very sweet voice, which... Very sweet. Very, very sweet. And um, the, the poetry that he was writing were heavily influenced by psychedelics. Mm-hmm. But you did not necessarily have to be a participant to appreciate uh, the, the the poetry. He was very very gifted, and um, I think probably one of the most underrated singer songwriters of of the period. I would agree with you. I mean, I, I uh, he was he was not heavily on my radar at the time. But going back and reviewing those records, um, I find them more than charming. I mean, um, what's that one? Crystal um, Did you come by again to die again? We'll try again another time. Another time. What? Yeah. Uh, called another time. Another time on uh, One Nation Underground. Yes. I love that. It's beautiful. It's, it is. It is beautiful. Come by again to die again. Well. Try again another time When you said to shape the world Was the shape, the shape of you Or did you cast enchanting glance Through the eye that all men use Or have you Come by again 
to die again Well, try again another time Did you find that the universe Doesn't care at all Did you find that if you don't care This whole wrong world will fall Or have you come by again To die again, well Try again another time Did you find that the world outside Is all inside your mind Or have you come by again To die again, well Try again another time And what, the, what Pearls Before Swine prompted was the notion that this music was here to stay to a certain degree because there were very gifted artists who appeared here to stay. So we've got uh, Pete Stamfel and Steve Weber, the holy modal rounders. And they came from the same cloth as the Fugs, and Bernard Stolman recorded them as well. He also recorded Truly Kupferberg in a solo effort, spoken word called No Deposit, No Return, which was primarily Truly reading advertisements from East Village newspapers. Uh, and he recorded Bill Burroughs. Yeah, and Amir Baraka. And Amir Baraka. So we've got this incredible incredible sampling of art when when you really look at uh, when you really look at what he accomplished there's a lot to be said for this catalog now Bruce McKay is an artist who never gained any attention but his recording I thought was a very very interesting uh, record with some wonderful songs and Ed Askew, another artist. Oh, yes, Ed Askew. That's a, a friend of mine, as I told you, and I, we've known Ed for many years. And uh, back when we lived in New York, we've lived in L.A. for 20 years, but back when we lived in New York, our first son, Jasper, was born. Um, Ed, we knew Ed through a circle of friends, and he was a painter. And he had studied fine art, and he was not doing well or you know living hand to mouth and you know we we got a couple of his, we bought a couple of his paintings and he also occasionally would babysit um for us and you know became a friend and then years later i mean he just casually mentioned or someone actually he was very modest somebody mentioned about him you know ed used to play and he recorded and uh, you know, I never heard him play. Never heard him play, and I used to play a lot at that time down in uh, in the village and around. And he would come by and he would listen to me play. And he never offered to play along or 
told me that he played. And so years later, uh, I'm a subscriber to Mojo Magazine, and there is an, an issue with an article called uh, Cult Heroes. And I'm flipping through it, and there's an article about it asks you. And I'm going, what the fuck is this? And it, apparently, this was right at the time that the ESP catalog was revived and by a European uh, outlet. And Ed apparently had a huge mega following in like Germany and, you know, the, the Nordic countries. And he had started to re-record and, and was touring. And now in his mid seventies, he's, he's working all the time. Bullets were sleeping in the sky. One met a young man in the night. Opened the flower in his sight. Which is a testament to not just the fact that one recording can keep you in the artistic you can still apply your craft after 50 years 50 years after the fact and and there's only one ESP disc so what but that label had fallen into obscurity and how many years was it unavailable was unavailable for a very, very long period of time. There were reissues of it in the 90s. And then Stolman reactivated the label in 2005. So I think this must have been in the 90s that, um, that Ed started to find this European following. Yes. Ask, the album was called Ask the Unicorn. Ask the Unicorn. And he, you know, he recorded it like... Like the wonderful thing about ESP is the artists determine what goes on, right? That was very important to Stolman. Stolman said only the artists decide what goes on their records. Yeah. Yep. So he made that record and uh, it did nothing and nobody knew who he was. And then he was rediscovered 40 years later. And I think what's truly remarkable is when you take a look at Randy Burns was another singer-songwriter of, of that period. I think his work deserves attention. I believe Randy is still performing. Um, Stolman recorded Jane County, and Jane County has gone on to become one of the staples of punk rock, Jane slash Wayne County. Of course... We have yet to address the Charles Manson album, Lie. Oh, yes, right. Well, friend to Dennis Wilson yes. of the Beach Boys, um, Wilson sort of arranged for Charlie to record some songs in 1967, and actually one of the songs ceased to exist was um, redone and put on one of the Beach Boy albums, I think 2020. Do, do you know which album? I th I'm, I'm not absolutely sure. I thought it was 2020. 
Um, and it was renamed here. I need, I can maybe find that information out. Um, and, um, Stallman said he justified because the album came out in 70 after the murders. And Stallman always justified by saying, I was influenced by Alfred Knopf, who published Mein Kampf. Yes. And, um, you know, the good thing is the, that all the royalties, whatever royalties there are, go to the estate of Wojcik Frakowski, who was one of the victims, to his, to his family. Yes. So Manson doesn't get the money. Well, Manson could not profit as a convicted, as a convicted felon. What yeah. What is interesting, though, is the album had the time, the Life magazine picture on its cover. That's right. And instead of <laughs> instead of saying life, it said lie, L I E. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, you have you have that album, yes, right? Yes, yes. The original ESP I, pressing. Yeah. I remember seeing it on your uh, bookshelf. Um, here it is. Uh, Cease to exist it was recorded under a different title. Never learn not to love on their album 2020. Yes. And Manson's ability to be able to still convince individuals during that time that he was capable of of being a recording artist uh, is is interesting. But he wasn't bad. It's all in the eyes of a dreamer. It's all in the eyes of the man. All the things that we've done in life and all, all the things that we've planned. Can the world be as sad as it seems? Where are man's hopes? Where are man's dreams? Are the eyes of a dreamer in the eyes of the man? No, he wasn't horrible in the eyes of the dreamer. Is a uh, is a catchy little tune. It's almost it's almost painful to have to admit that there is a great deal of talent in, in what he's tried to do. There is. Well, a, think of how how the course of history would have been changed if he had made it showbiz. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yes, of course. There's an album called uh, Charles Manson Live at San Quentin. And this is a a tape smuggled out of San Quentin, an audio cassette that was smuggled out of San Quentin, and it's basically got chuckles sitting around the uh, sitting around the estate, pretty much just chuckles, chuckles. He continues to fascinate. He does um, continue to fascinate. Yes, yes. It's, uh, Stallman says here, he said, uh, I saw him in a sense as a political victim as well as a psychopath. I had no sympathy for his conduct and my hunch was that he and the family were probably doing a brisk business in coke. These murders, other than just being a wildly lunatic thing, were characteristic of cocaine deals gone bad. So, I don't know. I mean, who knows? But um, Stallman had a lot of justifications in his mind. Yes, he had he had too many justifications in this particular case, and I always found it to be. I took the lie cover to be satirical, 
in nature. There were some individuals at the time who did think that there was a the railroading of, of Charles Manson was taking place and did not buy into into Vincent Bugliosi's uh, thesis and helter skelter. But he was a lifelong criminal and he was about as victimized as any of us are in in the world. It's what we succumb to. Uh, it's what you rise above, not what you fall below. Uh, so Stolman did have a great many justifications because of the cultural impact. He saw the cultural impact of this cat. So who could not make some... He profited from it to a certain degree. Yeah, and you know, I mean, that, this is the... I think to to kind of coast here towards the end of our podcast, um, there are contradictions with Stallman, his character, his business practices, um, the way he treated artists. But it's interesting, there is a recurrent theme as they interview these people that the lens of 50 years, they say, well, at least he put this out into the world, this music. Uh, yes, I became a lawyer in New York City uh, in 1960. I started to practice law in 1960 in New York City. If I speak too rapidly, you must stop me. I hope you, I'm not speaking too quickly. Um, and I wasn't certain I want, what I wanted to do with my career as a lawyer. So I explored various possibilities, and I knew what I didn't want to do, to be a divorce lawyer. I knew that. <laughs> I knew I didn't want to be involved in business transactions, because that's very dull, for me, anyway. Um, but I encountered, as it happens, I encountered some black composers who were all performing their own music, and they were totally unknown. They were the successors, they were the next generation after Thelonious Monk, Charles Mingus, Charlie Parker, that whole community uh, were famous. The record companies, of which there were only a handful of large ones, no really small ones, weren't interested because they had never heard of these artists. They wanted to be sure that they weren't making a mistake because they didn't really know what was good and was not good. So they didn't bet on unknowns. They focused only on artists who had long and well-established reputations. So Miles Davis had no real problem, or Charlie Parker, any of these people. But my gener my crowd, they were in their 20s and 30s. They were fully mature. They had their music together, their thoughts together. And they inspired me. I found them to be very deeply philosophical, very, very beautiful people, <laughs> very attractive people, and spiritual. They weren't into, into drugs, not at all. They came from all over America to New York. They came from Louis, from uh, St. Louis, they came from New Orleans, they came from Chicago, they came from many cities. But they understood that New York was the place to be. And so they were there, and they were starving. They were very distressed. Well, <laughs> I realized as I got, came to know them, 
They didn't need a lawyer. They needed someone to document their work on a record label. Well, there you have it, kids. What a story. Story of ESP Disc and Bernard Stolman. Thanks for joining us. Bill and Rich on Dig This.